Good morning. Jeff Stevens here, coming to you with another podcast. Uh, today, it's not going to be quite as topical, uh, although many of them are topical. You know, what's in the news, what's going on this day, stuff that's going on, although there are a couple sermons on there. This one's going to be right out of our home church that we run right here in the living room at our home. We've been going through Galatians with our group. You know, Galatians was the first letter that Paul wrote, so we thought it would be the first letter that we went through. And it's turning out to be a real great starting place for uh, starting a home church with friends around and uh, setting up, you know, what is right and good, uh, you know, what we should be doing, how we we should be practicing as a church together. And we've gotten through to Galatians 3. And uh, this past Sunday, I spoke out of verses 10 through 14. So Galatians 3 verses 10 through 14. And although we've been listening to Paul speak to um, the Judaizers and to Peter and to, we've been seeing, uh, um, him give a little bit of rebuke here, even for, um, the Gentiles who were converted, who are now, um, feeling like they should follow these Judaizers by thinking that they need to be circumcised or thinking they need to follow the Mosaic law. Paul has really given some strong rebuke here. He's trying to set this church up right. Uh, these people have been believers for a while and he's written this letter to say, Hey, You need to stay on track. And as he gets to these specific verses, this is really cool because he has broken down all this stuff about the Mosaic Law and he's going to bring it right back to the gospel and not just the gospel simply as the good news as believing in Jesus, but who Jesus is as he becomes the cursed, as Christ becomes the curse. There is a payment, a very serious payment for that good news, for that gospel And Paul is really going to paint that picture here in Galatians 3. So Galatians 3, verses 10 through 14. And uh, and this is what we see there. It says, For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be anyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law. Notice that word, all things there. And do them. Now it's evident that no one is justified before God by the law. For the righteous shall live by faith, but the law is not of faith, rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. A lot going on there. But um, like I said, Paul is really bringing this to a real serious moment here. You know, he's been shouting at him about trying to follow the law, about trying to become circumcised, about trying to follow all these rules. And he's like, look, this is about faith in Jesus. And this is who Jesus Christ is. He is the one who became the curse that the law puts us under in order that we might be saved through faith. Really important. In verse 10 that we start out with, This is the thing. You have to follow all the law, not part of the law, all the law, not most of the law, all the law. This call was you had to follow a whole bunch of rules and regulations and do all this stuff. And you can't skip one. You can't skip two. You can't bypass one. You had to do them all. You were going to be under a curse because there was nobody that could be Jesus aside. Nobody that was perfect enough to be able to follow this law. So Paul gets this from Deuteronomy 27. You know, it tells us in Deuteronomy 27 and verse 26, Cursed be anybody who does not confirm the words of this law by doing them. 
And all the people shall say amen is what it's written at the end of each one of the verses. But everybody will agree. I mean, everybody agrees on each one of these. See, Moses in Deuteronomy 27 is giving commands from Mount Ebal. Israel's getting ready to cross over the River Jordan. And as we look at Deuteronomy 27, if you want to turn there, we can pull that open. Look at Deuteronomy 27 and start in verse 15 and read all the way through the end. And it said, Cursed be the man who makes a carved or cast metal image, an abomination to the Lord, a thing made by the hands of a craftsman and sets it up in secret. And all the people shall answer and say, Amen. Now, each one of these verses is going to respond with that. Cursed be anyone who dishonors his father and his mother, and all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed be anyone who moves his neighbor's landmark, and all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed be anyone who misleads a blind man on the road, all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed be anyone who perverts the justice due to the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow. All the people shall say amen. Cursed be anyone who lies with his father's wife because he has uncovered his father's nakedness. All the people shall say amen. Cursed be anyone who lies with any kind of animal. All the people shall say amen. Cursed be anyone who lies with his sister, whether the daughter of his father or the daughter of his mother. And all the people shall say amen. Cursed be anyone who lies with his mother-in-law. And all the people shall say amen. Cursed be anyone who strikes down his neighbor in secret. And all the people shall say amen. Cursed be anyone who takes a bribe or shed innocent blood. And all the people shall say amen. And finally, cursed be anyone who does not confirm the words of this law by doing them. And all the people shall say amen. Specifically in this, he's given these commands. They look into the promised land. Everybody's going to be perfect. Think about this. If you just break these laws down, verse 16, idolatry of any kind is breaking the law. Verse 16, dishonoring your parents in any way, shape, or form is breaking the law. Verse 17, any sort of theft or stealing is breaking the law. 18, any sort of cruelty, anything that doesn't follow an ethical standard. Verse 19, perverting justice in any way, shape, or form. Choosing who does and who does not need mercy based on your own ethical or moral standard. Verses 20 through 23, sexual standards, and it goes through a few of them there, but think about this, you know, in the contemporary world, to include contemporary church, and I use the word church loosely, it redefines sexual standards in a way to suit how people feel, not suit what the Word of God says. Verse 24, just ex, uh, exercising violence. Verse 25, cheating in court or bearing false witness. And then verse 26, you've got to follow all of these. Plus, you've got to follow the whole Mosaic Law, of course. But this is really tough. There's no way these guys could have followed all this. These people, these Israelites could have followed all of these. This is why Paul is making such a big case for this. Now in Jeremiah 11.3, it says, You shall say to them, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Cursed be the man who does not hear the words of this covenant. You see, Jeremiah is talking about the covenant made with Abraham and the fathers of the faith. This would include all of the Mosaic law as well. This understanding that they had to follow all the law would have really made the Galatians sit back on their heels and think, yeah, there's definitely not a way that we can do this. And this is why Paul is driving this point home. You see, he goes on in verse 11. And he talks about the righteous living by faith. And we talked about in previous weeks, Abraham and what it meant to be faithful or to believe. You see, Abraham had belief and the demons had belief. But the reality is 
the belief when you look at the exegetical study that Abraham had was a firm foundation belief, a real knowledge and understanding the wisdom that God is who he said he is. He did what he said he did and he promises what he promises based on his nature and they will be executed because of who he is, not just what he says. But we have more evidence as well. You know, Paul wrote in Romans in verse 1, 16 to 17, Paul says here, For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also the Greek, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. And as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. You can't be righteous by the law. You have to be righteous through your faith in Jesus Christ. It is his imputed righteousness that makes us righteous. You know, really, the Bible only says that 10 people are righteous in the entire Bible, with the exception of, I think, 13 mentions. The other three are God and Jesus himself. But Noah, Lot, Joseph, Arimathea, Abel, Joseph, Cornelius, John the Baptist, Zacharias, Elizabeth, and Simeon are the only ones ever listed as righteous. Guess where that leaves the rest of us? Well, pretty simple. We're all unrighteous, which means we need someone to step in, right? But why is it important? Why is it important to point this out? Well, because it levels the playing field for us. You know, if I knew that my neighbor was more righteous because of his works, then it would force me to just want to do more works. It would be done out of selfishness. Nobody can say that they had more of an opportunity to be saved. No one can say they had more money or that they tithed more or that they felt more compassion, that they gave more of their time, that they were more talented, uh, that they did some task or some mission or they were more of a useful tool to the kingdom of God. You see, we learn from Ephesians 2 verse 9 that it's not by works. No one shall boast. We're not saved by our works. So no one can boast. You know, conversely, we learn in 1 Corinthians that God picks the foolish, the weak, the lowly, and the despised, says in 1 Corinthians 129. We are all equals in the eyes of God. See, if you could follow all the rules and all the laws, if you could give away every penny of your money to the poor and spend your entire life, you know, living in a Jesus Loves You t-shirt on the mission field, singing Kumbaya and leading revivals, it still wouldn't be enough. Because it would set Jesus aside. He wouldn't be needed if you could do all these things. It's not our work that gets it done, it's his. You see, when we move on to verse 12, we're going to learn here a little bit about Leviticus. This quote here from Leviticus tells us that following the law is not faith, that it's a lifestyle, right? He says here in verse 12, the law is not a faith, rather that no one does them shall, uh, that the one who does them shall live by them. This is people striving to live a certain lifestyle, thinking that that is going to make them righteous. But what we have here in verse 13 is what turns it all around. And this is the thing that uh, really attracted me to this set of verses. And I thought, man, this is so heavy. Everybody needs to hear this. We need to be preaching this. We need to be screaming it from the rooftops. It's really important. See, the propitiation. See, Jesus becoming the curse. The propitiation. 
So I recently did a study uh, for a research project and learning a lot about why Jesus has to be the propitiation, not just is the propitiation, not just as a part of God's sovereign divine plan, but why he has to be. And it's a concept, an amazing concept that's only understood in the realm really of Christian living and theology. The idea that a man would literally become the payment for our transgression, that he would literally become the one crushed under God's wrath. You see that word, although not used here, propitiation is only found a few times in our modern Bible. It's three times in the ASV in Romans 3.25, 1 John 2.2, 2, and 1 John 4.10. And then if you're to look in the New American Standard Bible, you will also find it in Hebrews 2.17. See that word propitiation, it comes from the Greek word hilasterion, which really has nothing to do with paying for sin. That would be uh, redemption or covering uh, or atonement. That really has nothing to do with all these, these things about Christ paying or redeeming you or covering you or atoning for you. Although Christ, yes, does all of these things. Yes, he does all of them. But what really this word means is it's an appeasement of God's wrath. And it's hard for us to figure that out because we feel as sinful people or people who've transgressed that we need those sins paid for or covered and what does it mean that as those for those things to take place that Christ had to become the one who through that wrath is appeasing God's wrath that is poured out so this entire concept i believe comes from Deuteronomy 21 and verses 22 and 23 which is about a man guilty of a crime that's punishable by death and then hung on a tree because of the curse from God. You see, it says in this verse that we just read that Christ redeemed us from the curse by becoming the curse, for it's written, Christ cursed is everyone who's hanged on a tree. So as we the second part of this verse, we read it. It says here in, in Deuteronomy 21, 22, and 23, that the person who is hung from a tree is one who somehow committed a crime that is punishable by death. They are so guilty that there's no other way to pay for their crime except for their life to be terminated. But if we look at the life of Jesus, he's committed no crime. And we know this by following his life. And you read through the four Gospels, the three synoptics and John, that we look at Christ's ministry that, you know, the religious, they just really wanted to catch him. And blasphemy. They really, really wanted to catch him doing something wrong. You know, we, we see that uh, through Matthew, they tried to catch him, uh, you know, working on the Sabbath and we, trying to, uh, he's healing people and they would say he's healing people in the name of Beelzebub and, and, and all these things. They really were trying to catch him. But the reality is he lived a perfect life, a sinless life. But how do we find the key to that dilemma where we get from the propitiation to the one that is so cursed, as it says in Deuteronomy, that they deserve to be hung on a tree? Well, I believe that the key to that dilemma is found in Genesis in the first four chapters, where we have the creation, then we have the fall, and we have sin, 
and death entering humankind or the earth. And then what we have is the Proto-Evangelium or the first gospel. You see, what we learn from Genesis 1 and 2 is that God is the sovereign creator over all the universe. He's in control. He's in command. He's in charge. There's no other. There's no equal. He created man to have dominion over the earth and all the inhabitants. Man has the ability to essentially rule over everything in the earth. He can eat everything that grows. He's got animals to name. I mean, the earth is really his to enjoy, to name everything. It's amazing the power that God gave to mankind to be here and have complete dominion over everything on earth is just an amazing concept that we just can't even fathom because we've fallen so far away from that now that we can't even grasp it. He created him to have dominion over all the earth and its inhabitants. But what we learn from Genesis 3 is that man's free will becomes his downfall. See, he really wants to know what God knows. Satan easily persuades Adam to question God's sovereignty. And if he has the knowledge of good and evil, surely he will become more like his creator. You see, it's not just about Adam being disobedient. And although, yeah, it's definitely part of being disobedient. You know, people use this idea, you know, what if you sinned against an all-holy God? Well, yeah, we all sin against an all-holy God, and we're all guilty of that. But it's more than that. It's not just about guilty of committing a crime. That's not the point we're missing. It's focused specifically on Adam's desire to have something that wasn't his to have more knowledge of God about his creation. See, he already had all this dominion over creation, but for Adam, it wasn't enough. He wanted to be sovereign over it. He wanted to be sovereign over creation, knowledge, his destiny. The problem here is he can't be. See, he's not God. Adam wanted to tap into that. What is it like to be God? What is it like to have this knowledge? What is it like to have this ability, this power? And this is where the fall happens. See, as we move into the second part of chapter 3 after the fall, we learn that God had a plan. He had a plan for salvation before the fall even happened. And in Genesis 3.15, what we get is the first sign that God will send us a Messiah in Jesus Christ. Where the heel of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. Her seed will be Jesus Christ. He will be the one that sends Satan, the tempter, to hell forever. And it is the plan for our redemption. This is the Proto-Evangelium, or the first gospel. But you have to keep reading and you have to get into chapter 4 to understand why being crushed under God's wrath. See, up to this point, we don't really see what sin is. We have no real idea what sin is. And it's the key here, I think. And even though Adam and Eve sinned and we don't get that definition, in Genesis 4-7, we're looking at the struggle between Cain and Abel. And if you ever read the story, you know that Cain and his brother Abel bring their sacrifices to God and God denies Cain's sacrifice and accepts Abel's and it makes Cain upset and jealous and he kills his brother. And as God explains to him what has happened, 
he says this in Genesis 4 and verse 7. As Moses records, it says, If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. You see, sin isn't a thing. It's not just an action. It's not just an act. It's not just a lack of ability to follow a law or a set of rules. You see, this idea here of sin crouching at the door that God is talking about when he talks to uh, Cain is this idea of sin being crouched at the ready and it is against him, but it becomes part of his nature. It is something that he cannot be over. He has to fight over it. Sin is his nature. See, because of Adam's selfish desire, mankind has a new nature of sinfulness. And this really, really is the key. Christ doesn't have to overcome the things we do, although he does. Christ does not have to overcome our transgressions or our not following the law. Christ has to overcome our nature that we have moved against God, that we have become enemies of God, that the sinful are hated, as the Psalms would say. We are an enmity with God. We've become his enemy. It tells us in 1 John 1, 8, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. The truth is not in us. See here it says have no sin, not that we have sin. Romans 5, 12 tells us, therefore, just as sin came in, the world through one man and death through sin. And so death spread to all men because all sinned. It spreads not as a thing, not as murder or theft. It is the nature that spreads. Galatians 5.17 says, For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit. And the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. And in Romans 7.18 it says, For I know that nothing good dwells in me. Paul says here, that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but I'm not the ability to carry it out because his nature is different. It's at this point that we learn that man has set himself against God, the almighty creator, who has no equal. He's holy and consistent with his nature, and he's been offended. The only reconciliation that's made possible is for him to pour out his wrath on which it has gone against his nature. And I think about this as the perspective of my own home, and although it's very simplistic, if you think as a father, what would you do if one of your sons now says, I am the father and I can do as I please in your home? And in the midst of him saying he can do as his pleased, in that moment when he says, I am now you, he can take your wife take the other kids in a sexual way that he can use them, abuse them, murder them. He can call good evil and evil good. He can steal from them, murder. He can do whatever he pleases. He is now the one in charge. He is now the father. This is what Adam did. You see, as a father, you would remove that child, you would learn to hate them because of what they've done against you. 
And this is what God has done against his child that has earned his wrath. You see, what wrath really is, is a pouring out of hatred. Wrath is not some silly word that we use to just say to pour out punishment. It's to pour out hatred. It's a deep burning hatred that's been earned by mankind. And as we look back into Galatians at verse 13, it says here, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming the curse. He redeemed us from that curse by becoming the one that all of God's hateful wrath and all that we deserved to include all of our iniquities have ever committed in the history of mankind for believers was poured out on Jesus Christ. If you can imagine the most awful human ever to live and the most awful things that they did, Christ has the ability, his grace is effective enough to take all of it on himself. All of God's hatred poured out on his son Jesus. And this is why it's so important to go over this. As we move on into verse 14, it says, So that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. You see, this is Abraham's blessing. We look at Genesis 12, verses 1 through 3. It says, I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, I will curse and all the peoples on the earth will be blessed through you. See, Israel, the nation would have taken this to be specifically about a blessing for them as a people. And although, yes, it is more importantly and more specifically, Abraham and the Jews, Israel, are blessed because Jesus Christ comes through them. The promise given to Abraham is Jesus Christ. And we are blessed, as it says in 14, through the Gentiles because of Christ Jesus. It's he, Jesus, who came in order to become the propitiation. It's he who sent the Holy Spirit in whom we are baptized with by faith for our redemption. See, I think we have a really small view of what Christ did on the cross. We have a really small view of what he took on. It was much less about being hung there all day and much less about the crown of thorns and much less about the nails driven through his hands and his feet and much less about being thirsty and dehydrated or the spear stuck in his side. It's much less about being spit on and the names being called. As a man, many men have been tortured in many ways. It was much less about the cat of nine tails tearing the flesh from his back down to his ribcage and his spine. Although horrible, throughout history people have been tortured. A man can take a lot. So much less about that. So much more about taking on God's wrath. The payment that was never meant for humankind. See, some religions believe that the work done was done in the Garden of Gethsemane before he went to the cross. That when he was there begging God to take the cup from him and finally accepted that it was God's will. I don't believe that. I believe that that was just him preparing to go to the cross. And some theologians will tell you that the most important thing was Jesus' resurrection. And I believe Jesus' resurrection is important. It's important for us historically to look back and know that he overcame death and 
makes us know that he's God, of course, but I believe that was proof and fulfillment. But without Jesus, the man, sinless, innocent, taking on all of the hate stored up for thousands of years of war, hate, rape, murder, theft, lies, genocide, abortions, defiling creation through sexual sin, we have no stand or we have to stand condemned for all of that sin. And as believers, we just cannot do it. And why did he do this for us? To prove to us that he loves us. To prove to us that he loved us. He crushed his own son to prove that his love for his creation was so great that he's willing to give away his most cherished so that we may return to him spotless, innocent, and sinless. For us, Christ became the curse.